episode 279 of the Winner 6 podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee, and join me this time making his Winner 6 debut, it's Isaac Sarris. Welcome to the podcast, Isaac. Thank you for having me. You are not going to be subjected to the Rowan Caddy treatment here. I'm going to lead off with that. Rowan <laughs> has had the misfortune of following the, what was the previous Soul Bucks playoff loss this season. Um, but that was a really, really ugly loss, not just in terms of performance, but on the scoreboard, where in your case, you got a double overtime game. So I'm not going to do that. Hopefully this can kill that narrative for Rowan too, and we can all just get on with the playoffs. But first of all, I think up front, it's important we get that across. You're not to blame here. That's good. Eric you know, Bledsoe, think... maybe not so much you. Above above anyone else, I think it was Gucci Mane. Yeah, that's that's definitely a valid point. The Drake curse is over, and we now need to get Gucci Mane out of that jersey. I don't know. Are we going to see him at more games? I'm not entirely sure. Let's hope not. Um, based on what <laughs> we've what we've seen in Game Three, um, to get into it a little bit, as I mentioned, and as you likely already know if you're listening. Um, game three finished with a 118-112 win for the Toronto Raptors. It was an incredibly ugly game offensively from both teams. Um, it ended up going down to the wire, getting into a second overtime period, where ultimately players having fouled out played a big part in it, particularly Giannis. And yeah, it's kind of it's a it's a tough game to really have strong feelings about. Is my opinion on it? Are you somewhere along those lines? Did you come away from this feeling anything particularly pressing about the books, or is this just kind of like, yeah, they lost the game. It's gonna happen when you're ten and one. You're kind of a little bit overdue a game like this. No, I'm with you. Um, you got to lose one to win in five, right? As you remarked last series. Uh, but also, I mean, Toronto's better than the Celtics and the Pistons, and so it's not surprising that they would win at home. Mm-hmm. Um, this is certainly not a reason to panic, which is why I didn't look at Twitter. Uh, Always a good idea. Know, gotta gotta love Bucks Twitter, you know. But um, I mean, Giannis is not going to play that badly again. Bledsoe might. Um, I don't think Middleton will only have nine points again. Um, and most of the, the bench mob played really well. So, um, you know, this is a no panic zone, I think. I agree. And I think one of the key things that's probably gone under discussed because of I mean, the obvious panic that comes from who are supposedly your three best players 
supposedly isn't even fair that they are the Bucks' three best players underperforming like they did in game three. It's the fact that, as you mentioned, the bench remained great. The bench mob didn't fall off. And in a lot of ways, that would have been my concern. That's the old kind of cliche of the playoffs is your role players played better at home. Um, I guess it certainly worked that way for the Raptors as Norman Powell had 19 points. But for the Bucks, this may even be George Hill's best playoff performance, but there's been so many incredibly good ones at this point. It's kind of, it's hard to pick one above the other and Malcolm Brogdon just continues to thrive on his return from injury. So to me, I was quite encouraged by that. Um, it was it was also just kind of a weird game overall, in part because the Bucks led 2-0 after Giannis got a layup to open the scoring. And I'm not sure if it was the first period. I actually think it might be second overtime before they held the lead again. George Hill gave them a two-point lead, and that was the only lead they had. So they only actually led twice in this game, and yet it managed to go on for 58 minutes, which, you know, that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Um Let's let's get into some of the players. I mean, we'll have to start with Giannis. Uh, Kawhi certainly saw a lot more of Giannis. The Raptors opened up with Kawhi being his designated defender. I don't think it remained quite as rigid as a lot of people are saying it did from that point on, but the big adjustment from the Raptors was probably something they should have done to begin with was just multiple bodies. Um, even more aggressive than that, there was trapping, there was blitzing. And I think where they got a lot of their successes is they could get Giannis away from the center center of the floor. There's multiple times they got him kind of over near the sideline. They trapped him, and he made some a couple of really awful passes. He pulled off some good ones, but he made some bad ones too. Still, he had 23 rebounds, seven assists. I thought his defense was great. The problem was the eight turnovers that came from playmaking being an issue and only 12 points on 16 field goal attempts. 2-7 from the free throw line, not very good either. What did you see from Giannis in this game? And I guess more specifically, are you seeing this as just one of those games that he does tend to have once every now and then, or is it indicative of something that could be a bigger issue as the series continues? Somewhere in the middle, I think. I don't think it's... You know, he'll have an off day, but his off days are like... 20 points, you uh-huh. know, 40% shooting, maybe 50%. You know, his off days are still really, really good. And he normally doesn't have eight turnovers. That's, that's really high. Um, I think getting to look at it on film will probably help him. Uh-huh. He's a gym rat, so I think he'll give this the attention it deserves. Um, the biggest, the biggest thing outside of the aggressive double teaming and blitzing was there were multiple possessions where he's driving right down the middle of the floor, seemingly against one guy, and loses control of the ball. That was uncharacteristic. You know, it's maybe it's Siakam is standing in front of him, and he just sort of loses it. And then someone picks it up and goes the other way for the Raptors, which is just, it was weird. It wasn't like he was getting stripped. It wasn't like Kawhi was bothering him. He just... He's got those long arms, and so the ball tends to drift away from his body. Uh, which, again, maybe if he looks at it on film, that gets solved. I'm not too worried about it. The free throws are the big killer for me, I think. I mean, they win I mean, the game if he shoots even just a little bit below his average. Yeah. If he shoots 50%, they win, even with the turnovers. So, 
you know. I mean, I think it's just one bad game, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. There is, I think the part of the reason I feel it is just a one-off thing. There's a couple of reasons. One, um, he has a proven track record of adjusting. Like these kind of ruts don't tend to be factors for him for very long. We obviously saw this against the Celtics in particular, um, where he gets a look at something, maybe the first time it can work, but he adjusts very quickly from there. So unless you've got something different to throw at him in game four, chances are he's going to figure a lot of it out. The second part of it touches on what you were referring to there in terms of him coming down the middle of the floor and kind of losing control. That spoke to something that I thought was just a larger issue for the books, and that's kind of just a complete lack of composure in the first half in particular. I think early on when some things started to happen, there was borderline panic from the books. Um, the The best example, I think, of it was when Marcus Gasol made his first two three-pointers, and then all of a sudden it's like guys charging out towards him trying to contest the shots, and then he's getting things off the dribble. He's being able to pass off. To other guys, they're getting easy looks around the basket. They're getting offensive rebounds because they're getting to the rim. It's kind of like everything fell apart just because Marcus Gasol made his first couple of three-pointers, which really surprised me because, you know, your defense is to allow him to take them. And it's also to bet on, okay, he could make a couple, but if we keep giving him those shots, he's going to get uncomfortable. He's going to overthink it, and he's not the kind of high-caliber shooter that's going to punish over and over again. So I kind of felt that was indicative of something that was going on in a wider sense of the books. And I thought Giannis had some of that too. There was times where it's just kind of like, okay, let's get into something and let's settle down here. Um, he didn't run a lot of pick and roll, and I would be doing a lot more of that. Um, I think just getting him the ball and getting shooters to come up and screen for him kind of just give the Raptors something to look at. There was a lot of Bledsoe. We'll talk about Bledsoe later as we end up having to do in every single episode. Um, But I don't know if playing off the ball was the strategy to kind of overcome this. And I think one of the things that was apparent as the game went on, particularly in the fourth quarter, the Bucs got some really, really nice looks in the fourth quarter from Bud drawing stuff up after timeouts. And it was more when they were kind of left to their own devices in the flow of a game that there was just something not quite right. They weren't, maybe the game was moving a little faster for them than usual. Maybe they were just a bit flustered by some of the things that happened early on. But normally with this books team, they would then settle down. And enough happened in the game that you think, right, you're right there, settle down, and this game is there to win didn't really happen so I, I think that is kind of interesting i mean just taking a look at the numbers um if you look at the advanced numbers for the books obviously most players are logging not the most positive numbers generally negative numbers outside of pat Connaughton, who had a 20.9 net rating yes was second best on the team at 4.1 so they were still outscoring the raptors 4.1 points per 100 possessions in Giannis's minutes. The interesting thing is the offensive rating was really bad by his standards. It was 90.4, but they were locking the Raptors down defensively. And his defense was really, really impressive. Um, particularly early on, the Raptors were just afraid to go anywhere near the rim. He got an early block. I can't quite remember on who, but it it really threw them off their game. I, I think his performance overall is... So, 
I was editing. I was editing both the post game articles behind Look Pass this morning. Um, Jordan did the takeaways. Tio did post game grades, and I feel like both of them reference this being his worst postseason game of the year. I'm really not quite sure it was. I think game one against the Celtics was worse because I think he was in the game, and certainly in the fourth quarter, he got himself more into the game. Um, as you mentioned, missing five free throws—that's a problem, but it doesn't necessarily say you know, you're being a passenger. Likewise, I think he took a lot of contact around the rim where you'd say on another night, maybe he's there, he gets some more easy points, he's more comfort from the line, and that's not really an issue. But I guess, look, part of that is, I don't want to go into a big officiating thing, and there is plenty to talk about, but I don't know what we gain out of it. This is what happens when you go on the road. You know, you're you're more susceptible to this, particularly if you get like a Scott Foster-led officiating crew like the Bucks got in, in game three. But f- for me, I'm I kind of with you on that with Giannis. I just think he's going to he's going to adjust, he's going to overcome it. And it's just so rare for him to have two bad games in a row. I mean, that obviously stands to the team as a whole, but the reason that it applies to the team is because Generally, if the books lose, he hasn't had his greatest of games and he takes that very seriously and he bounces back from it. So I would be very optimistic. Also, I guess before we move off of this, the interesting wrinkle of them putting Kawhi on him more certainly than they had beforehand um, is what is that going to do to Kawhi's body? What is the toll of that going to be? And then he has an awkward landing and he kind of spends a lot of this game kind of hobbling. Um, It certainly seemed to hamper his defense significantly. He managed to do quite a lot offensively and still do what the Raptors need him to win. Um, But I wonder how he feels today after taking Giannis for quite a lot of possessions, playing 52 minutes and having the awkward landing. And I think that's kind of something which may not be spoken about in the run-up to game four, but could very quickly become apparent when that gets underway. I don't know what you think, but I'm not sure if the Raptors could necessarily repeat this game plan after Kawhi playing that kind of minutes load, potentially picking up a knock. I don't know if they could just say, oh, let's do the exact same again in game four and execute it to the same level. No, I agree with you. I don't I don't see it happening again. Even in this game, he was 11 for 25 on field goal attempts. Most of his offense, a third of his offense was free throws. Mm-hmm. Um, you could tell he wasn't getting great lift on layups. He had five turnovers. And like you said, he played 52 minutes. Siakam played 51. Marcus Gasol played 45. Um, it, it's just, you know, it doesn't seem sustainable. Um, and if he is, obviously, I think Nick Nurse said he's fine, but that could be he's a trooper and he's going to play through something. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think I don't think we'll get an honest health report, which is you know one hundred percent and understandable. You don't have yeah. to tell the truth in this scenario, uh, outside of an ethical compel- compulsion to always tell the truth. Um, which nurse doesn't seem to have because he was at least a little bit clever with how he um, approached pregame media journeys. Yeah, when he indicated, yeah, was... oh, there'll be lineup changes. Um, nope. And he said, oh, I never said they'd be starting a lineup changes, was his response after the game, which is kind of like, <laughs> sure, but we all kind of assume when someone says that. Um, 
look, they won the game. I don't think that had any impact on the books whatsoever, but it was just a kind of interesting Nick Nurse wrinkle, which definitely would make me believe, as you say, that even if Kawhi was borderline, you know, needing to go and get his leg amputated, Nick Nurse would be telling us he was fine right up until that point. Um, let's let's move over to options two and three and whatever order books fans will forever argue about them falling in. Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe had really tough nights. Uh, it's not the first time in this series. Bledsoe in particular, it's obviously not the first time in the playoffs. They had identical shooting profiles. Three of 16, <laughs> one of six from three. Both of them. And that's kind of problematic in its own right because yeah. they are so different as players that there's just no reason for that to replicate. Yeah. Like, Middleton should be taking more trees, but it should be taking less. Very simple, simple adjustment to make there. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on what you saw from them? Is this just... It's it's probably tough to put the two of them together as well because I think at this stage Bledsoe's inconsistencies are more consistent that it's becoming a different kind of discussion. Middleton, Middleton, the books need to be better, but at the same time he is still taking Kawhi most of the game. Um, Bledsoe had a good defensive game, but he was defending Kyle Lowry all night, and this wasn't a you know, uh, game one Kyle Lowry. This was a much more normal version of Kyle Lowry who actually didn't really do a whole lot even when it came his way. I mean, the Raptors were good when he was on the floor, but it wasn't his most impactful game and obviously he picked up the six fouls. I'm I'm not sure if this does anything to the way I increasingly feel about both guys. Um, I think... Middleton, I still give some benefit of the doubt to because I think him and Brogdon are both doing a really good job on Kawhi. It's just because Kawhi has 36 points, as you mentioned earlier. Again, he's doing that on less than 50%. Um, he's getting to the free throw line. I think that's maybe the one area where the Bucks defensive is falling down. There are some kind of cheap fouls where it's kind of hitting him on the hand just as he's about to go up that have gone against them. But overall, this was really ugly and it was one of the rare occasions where Giannis wasn't there to pick up the slack for those two yeah I agree um I am I'm much more inclined to you know give Middleton basically a pass because of the job he's doing on on uh on Kawhi I think I mean three turnovers not too bad um nine boards Two for four from the free throw lines, tough in a game that went to overtime twice. Yeah, that, that is really hit, tough. Just hit one. Um, didn't he, didn't he miss two in a row? Am I remembering I that correctly? Uh, I don't know about that. I don't think. No, it was Siakam that missed two in a row. Around. Siakam missed two in a row late, all right, but I, I don't know why I thought that Middleton might have missed his two in a row. No, I think he's, he had a couple that spun in and out. Um, on separate trips to the line. Regardless, two for four, not great. Not good. Uh, but, you know, it's it's one thing for Bledsoe to have three steals, which is great defensive performance, but if you're giving it away five times on the other end, you kind of just wipe that out. Um, 
And when Giannis is already having problems turning the ball over, you don't need your point guard to also be turning the ball over. It's just compounding errors upon errors. Yeah, and there's also, I guess, the element of this that in Bledsoe's case is more significant is on at least two instances, maybe three instances, like kind of crucial junctures in this game, Bud pulled him out and he brought George Hill in. And George Hill was playing great, but I think it's also it also is saying something. I'm not I'm not looking to make a big deal out of this or suggest some sort of greater shift, but I think it is naturally saying something about where the coach's trust is in those two guys right now and obviously where their respective confidence levels are. Because just some of the some of the decisions again um like this is basically Bledsoe's decision corner on every episode but it's the times where he chooses to pull up for three rather than going at guys you see him kind of isolate a one-on-one with Marcus all and sure you could lull him into kind of a false sense of security and pull up and make a shot over him but the chances are you're not going to be as successful doing that as if you just decide to blow by him and get to the rim and Bledsoe had at least three situations along those lines where he didn't do that. He decided to take the shot. And other than that, and I mean, this speaks to a larger books problem as well. And one that again, where you think any one possession could have made a difference here. Bledsoe missed a ton of layups at the rim. Easy layups. And the books were so guilty of it themselves. But I feel like Bledsoe probably missed three or four individually. Like this is one of the top five finishers in the restricted area, like of all players, certainly the best guard in the NBA at doing it. And you're missing that many shots at the rim. That's a real problem. Even one of the occasions when he got to the free throw line, he kind of had an easy finish through contact that he blew. And it's in a game where you end up in double overtime. Like there are so many instances the books can look back to here and say, you know, if just that one thing happened, that it's kind of incredible that none of those things happened. It really shows it to be, something of an outlier night, something of an anomaly that none of those things just happened to get the books over the edge because they had all of the chances to do so um, without ever having any real command of the game. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious as to if it will lead to tweaks in the shape of the rotation because the other player who we're not going to mention in the same category as either Giannis, Chris, or Eric, is Nikola Mirotic, who again had a tough game, really struggled shooting. His, the best part of his performance was actually his defense, which that's certainly not what they traded for Nikola Mirotic with that in mind. Um, I wonder if you just got to re, rethink about how a lot of your lineups look throughout the course of the game, and a big part of that could be keeping Giannis and Bledsoe apart a bit more often and trying to get if it means you're going small or i mean look brooke had a good game brooke shot the ball well so you could keep him out there but where you're gonna run if Giannis is out there okay let's try and get george hill let's try and get brogdon middleton either brooke or urson uh pat could go out and play basically any combination of those players and just try to limit the opportunities to have two non-shooters particularly if the raptors are going to send very, very aggressive help Giannis's way every time he gets the ball. Because if that's what's happening, you've got an open man. And on this evidence, we don't want the open man to be Eric Bledsoe. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Even in this game, Brogdon and Hill each played 37 minutes. 
and Bledsoe played 34, um, despite the former two players being bench players, ostensibly. So, I mean, as you mentioned, it seems Bud trusts those two guys more, um, you know, late game in terms of decision-making, in terms of compatibility when Giannis was on the floor, when he was still eligible to play. Um, and if your strategy is, you know, pick and rolls, which I agree should happen a little bit more, Eric Bledsoe gives the Raptors someone to pre-rotate off of, um, which is just not what anyone needs. Um, I don't know if he'd get pulled out of the starting lineup. I don't know what that would do to his confidence. But certainly maybe give him six minutes in the first quarter and then start staggering that with Giannis to make sure, as you said, you don't have two non-shooters on the floor at the same time because it just doesn't work. Yeah, and I think the like if I was to give one one thought to sum up my feelings for what this episode would be and what I'm kind of feeling after that loss is like there is there is a conversation that has some validity to talk about. Would the books be better with Hill starting right now because Bledsoe is really off? Mm. The the flip side of that though, and very much where I fall is Bledsoe has been a starter on a sixty win team that has a two one lead in the conference finals, has home court, and they have just lost their second game of the postseason. Um, they had won six consecutive playoff games before this against two of the three rivals in the East. That it was. I guess uh, widely discussed, they were you know right there on a par with. So the books were due a bad game in many ways. Bledsoe has had multiple bad games at this point, where his doesn't just feel like you know any old exception. All the same, anything drastic changing this books team to me makes no sense because I think Bledsoe could probably play as he has been playing, and the books get truth. The conference finals in five games could be six, could be seven, whatever. They get through the series. Um, as I've kind of alluded to on recent episodes, my one concern with Bledsoe is if they are going to advance, they're going to get to the finals. He might be the book's most important player. He's the guy who should be able to attack some of the Warriors. I was going to say some of the Warriors' weaknesses. One of their few weaknesses. Um, he's tailor-made to attack. And on both ends of the floor, I mean, he he's going to be crucial, obviously, in guarding Curry, but on the opposite end, in basically putting Curry on his back feet, getting past him, and getting penetration, so the Warriors have to collapse. Um, that's important, too, though, because you can't just make a really short-sighted decision based on what you think might win game four to then find yourself a week, ten days from now, having a version of Eric Bledsoe with even less confidence going up against Steph Curry. Like, it's not even a balancing act. There's just kind of, you've got to believe in him. He is one of your best players in an objective sense. If you look at the larger body of work, it's certainly beyond concerning what seems to happen to him when he gets into the postseason. But I think you've got to trust him and hope that at the very least... His teammates are going to do enough to carry him past whatever struggles he's got or to at least carry him beyond this series. And from then, maybe you hope he's got a better matchup. But even at that point, 
like it's very hard to point to matchups and say that's the cause for what Eric Bledsoe has done in the playoffs. I don't know. It's I I'm very much with with the whole books situation right now. Again, this is just the second loss of the playoffs. Um, they have a two-one lead. If they were to lose a game in Toronto, like. I predicted five games before this series, and I predicted that game three would be the game they'd lose. And that's not because I'm some sort of, you know, some sort of genius. That's because, well, if you're going to lose a game, probably lose it away from home. Um, If the opposing team is going to get one of those right, you know, it's probably their first time home, crowd at their most energized, possibly give you a different look. And a big part of my belief in the books is that you might catch them once with something, you're not going to catch them twice. And they will be better in game four. Now, the Raptors are good enough that if they could produce a really great performance all around again, they could beat a better version of the books. But kind of what flies under the radar in this being a Raptors win is the Raptors didn't produce a great performance. Um, This was not as good as they probably played in game one when they got the best performances from... Larry, anyway, the best performance from Larry you could possibly get, but uh, 39.2% for the field, 37.8 from deep, out-rebounded, even though they they killed the Bucks in the offensive glass early, which was certainly a different a different wrinkle to the series. The Bucks ultimately came back and won that battle by five extra offensive rebounds. I mean, there's... On what we've seen, this is as bad as the books can play. The Raptors didn't play all that well. And they almost got the win. And I, I don't see why you'd adjust. I, there's cause for concern with Bledsoe. There's even some cause for concern with Middleton. Um, he needs to score more. The books need him to score more. But on a normal life for Giannis, well, maybe they don't need him to score more if George Hill and Malcolm Brogdon are going to combine for 44 points off the bench. So it to me, I'm very much in the yeah, let's just keep doing what we're doing here because I'm not even sure it's it's been found that once as much as the books hurt themselves. I'm, I don't want to dismiss the Raptors defense. Their defense was great. It was a great defensive game. It was an ugly offensive game, uh, but very entertaining because both teams matched each other in terms of defensive intensity and the quality of their defense. But I just don't see another game playing out exactly like this and even if it did you'd kind of like the book's chances to advance past it so i'm kind of very much let's stick with the the status quo here are there any changes even further down the rotation that you would think of or when we think of what we saw from the bench guys here i mean if there is one adjustment to be made and it's one that i may be open to is it time to do the Brogdon Miritich swap that I mean long term the books need to have happen? Is there something like that worth exploring? What do you think? Brogdon was three of eight from three. Miritich was one of seven. Um I think it helps in a in terms of consistency offensively, both in terms of shooting and decision-making, not that Miritich is a poor decision-maker, mm-hmm. but it gives you a guard to take the ball out of Eric Bledsoe's hands every few possessions. Um, and it's a different look. You know, I think the shakeup needs to be not in terms of minutes played by anyone, 
but who is playing all at the same time and how they're attacking. Because as you mentioned, the Bucks played great defense. The Raptors were under 100 points in regular time. They just need to put the ball in the basket a little bit more often. Um, and I think Miritich in the second unit. I don't see any any flaws there. Um, I, I think there's an interesting thing in that as well. It's because when you think about it, it will be, is there more advantage to having Brogdon back with the starters or mm. more advantage to Miritich in the second unit? Um. I think Miritich, what he does and with the way the books play, should be able to function just as well really in either role, with the exception possibly being that playing with the starting group is forcing him to play small forward, which defensively isn't natural for him anyway. And he's actually doing well on that front. It's one of the things yeah. he's holding his own in. But to me, I probably I probably lean towards Brogdon starting being a little bit more important although he's sharing a lot of minutes as is with these kind of guys i just think it's the driving threat that he has i, I think he's look he's generally a more efficient he's not the volume shooter meritage is he's more efficient that's a plus in terms of the book struggling to shoot efficiently at the moment but also the driving threat if he's on the floor more often with Giannis, give the raptor someone else who can drive to worry about and he's had good success already um, even Kawhi Brogdon is not fast it's something that's been talked about a lot over the years but he has this really quick first step and a great instinct for when a defender's off balance and when he can get past them he's strong he's strong too he's strong exactly if, 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 if contact comes across he's going to stay on balance and he's good, a good finisher when he gets to the basket there were a couple occasions and maybe Look, maybe I'm overplaying this because Kawhi could have been hobbled, but where he's one of Mama Kawhi, and I'm kind of thinking, okay, any other defender, you'd say he's going to drive, he should drive, and it's going to end up in an easy two points. But this is Kawhi, and yet he decided to drive, and he still got to the rim just as easily as ever. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, because, look, there's not a lot of holes you can pick in Kawhi's defense, but if Brogdon has the combination of just enough quickness, the right size, and his knack and skill for finishing at the basket. Yeah, maybe look for some more drives if that's a way that you can even have him have some success against Kawhi. And that's without the effect of, you know, Brogdon in the corners. He missed one corner tree that really would have been crucial, but it was shocking that he missed that shot. I think that says a lot. If Miritich missed it, you'd be like, he should make it, but right now his shooting's just been a bit more erratic. That I don't know if we necessarily expect them to. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think Brogdon really reminds me of Kawhi, both physically and in terms of style of play. Yeah. They're very fundamentally sound. They're strong. They're long. They like they to ISO. Of, yeah. They kind of just fundamental you to death as a guard. Um, and so they match up well against each other on both ends. If you start him, then Kawhi can't hide on Miritich for a possession or Bledsoe or whomever. You force Kawhi to guard somebody the whole game. And then I do think it would help Nikola's offense to be the five, I guess, with this with the bench mm-hmm. mark. Because when he was, you know, having that monster half season in New Orleans, because he was like their second option. 
Yeah, well, definitely. Sometimes but... the first option when like AD was sitting or whatever, and that's well, just... well, certainly when AD was healthy and they went in a really nice stretch, they were mm-hmm. the two best players. Because mm-hmm. he had the ball, and he's got to have. I think he's got to have the ball a little bit more to be in rhythm as opposed to playing pure spot up big like Lopez tends to do. So I think it would help both players, and it wouldn't hurt the Bucks in any way to do it. So, so do it. <laughs> yeah, you know? I, I agree. I, I think as well, you mentioned him playing the five. Could be the four, but what I like the idea of is him and Ursan sharing those two front court mm-hmm. spots so you can go five out mm-hmm. when you've got some bench-heavy lineups. I mean, Brooke plays a lot with that group, so you're kind of doing that anyway. But go smaller um, because... Yeah, go, go Bledsoe, Pat, George Hill maybe. Mm-hmm. and Miritich, and you have your discount Giannis lineup. Yeah, and you've got a lot of ball handling, a lot of kind of creative players in that group. You've got really good shooting. I think some looks like that are probably worth exploring. Um, what we're going to do, we have a lot of mailbag questions, so let's cross over into the mailbag because kind of anything we haven't already touched on we'll hit on throughout the duration. Um, so firstly, from at Alex underscore Koenig, 023, this is Alex's regular um, game day outfit update. So my now clean outfit is five and one, and without it, it's five and one. What do I need to do to secure the win for game four? I hate to take it out of your hands, Alex, but I don't think it's under your control. I think the books might have to do it, much like I said last time. This books team is beyond... Um, the need for superstitions i think they're just really good um you don't have to think it's you know any lucky item any lucky piece of clothing because they can probably win regardless of what else everyone else in the world decides to do around them i don't think there's a real correlation but um if you find a new formula that works for game four i'm not saying don't stick for it for game five but yeah i think we're all good on that one i think go on he's left with one of two options either uh see this is tough i'm assuming he still wears clothes when he's not wearing the game day outfit yes he does he has a difference so i suggest either wearing nothing okay or layering the game day outfit with normal clothes i was thinking there is another completely new option there for him which is to wear something completely different now it does come with the risk of just completely playing out of that could be the losing outfit that we don't want to unlock mm-hmm. at the same time though it could be it could be a new streak started alex you've got important decisions to make but i don't think we can help you to make them from at mke robert i'm taking game four off of twitter how about you guys <laughs> um i kind of took game three off twitter i was live tweeting for the site account but I didn't want Game of Thrones spoiled for me, so I had a list set up, which was mm-hmm. basically just beat writers and official accounts. Um, so I missed a lot of the noise that I might otherwise get. And then when the game finished, I did watch Game of Thrones. So I wasn't aware that it was bad, although in hindsight, now that I think of it, of course it was bad. Yes. Um, game four, will I stay off Twitter? I guess it depends on if I am able to uh, in terms of obligations or not. But my advice has long been if you can stay off Twitter to watch a game, that's a much more enjoyable way to watch the game. Twitter, I think, for me is, you know, if they're up by 25 after the first quarter, that's probably a fun time to be like, oh, I wonder what Twitter's saying. 
but maybe just watch the game without that and let it kind of let it add to your experience if you know it's going to add to your experience rather than living the whole game through it and then dealing with the potential horrors that might come down the line. Yeah, full agreement. I think take game four off Twitter. It's a terrible, terribly hypocritical thing for me to say because <laughs> I live online. Um, in in general, Twitter makes your life worse. Yes. Uh, your enjoyment of literally anything is lessened by spending it on Twitter. Um, that's Bucks basketball, any show that you like, um, any cultural event, politics, just everything is bad. It, you always think, um, oh, this might this might add to my experience. This might be fun to hear what other no. people are saying about <laughs> it. Turns out, not so much. No, there's just yeah, it's it's terrible. Um, but we we can't leave. No, that's, for whatever reason, that's the so. problem. <laughs> um, from a delish zero four, Kawhi seems to be drawing the smallest of fouls, getting superstar calls. As a result, they keep getting in foul trouble. Is this something the books can be better at, or is it something they'll just have to play through? I think to be fair on this, the Raptors have dealt with more foul trouble than the books in this series. Um, it feels like that's a constant issue for at least two of their players, and you can kind of rotate through, and it, rotate through, and it could be any two. He's getting small fouls, I think, in part because he's really difficult to defend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There weren't a lot of them that I didn't think were fouls when the replays came around. There were a couple that when they happened, I was like, oh, come on. And then you'll see the replay and you're like, yeah, okay. Brogdon did kind of rake down his hand or Middleton did. So. You don't I, see the Bucks protesting a lot of the calls either. Middleton no, I, I don't, which will is, I, argue if he thinks you're wrong. And he's not throwing his hands up the refs. He's just sort of like, okay, yeah, I messed that one up. Yeah, I, but, I think uh, to your point, Powell had six fouls, Van Vliet had five fouls, Gasol had five fouls, uh, Lowry fouled out, Siakam had four by the end of the game. Uh, meanwhile, it was only Giannis and Middleton who had six and five, respectively. Yeah, so I, and in a it, double it, overtime it's game. Concern. Yeah, it's not a concern. And I think anything questionable, like maybe the Siakam uh, block call, that Giannis fouled out on is simply a product of being on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not. I think there was some poor officiating. To be sure, they missed a clear double dribble. Yeah, they're um, they're the two calls. You've you've just yeah. looked on the two. They're the two calls that I feel are worthy of any kind of consideration to. But they're also kind of like okay, they were missed. They happened. They're gone now. It's it's not some wider issue that you can point to in the series. Yeah. But the, they're the two calls that change the game. Kawhi's double dribble on the dunk and I don't I don't think there was much in it for me but I cer- I certainly didn't think yeah that should have been called for the block. I thought that was a charge he took. A clear uh Siakam lowered his shoulder. Giannis is moving his feet but in a legal defensive stance that's that's a charge. Yeah. Uh, but but I mean if 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 you make one more free throw neither of those calls happens. So, you know, don't put yourself in that position to where you're dependent on a call going the right way and you'll be fine. You know? I think I think that's exactly what Bud generally says in those situations too. And I think something we've seen throughout the season is the books are actually good enough to win 
when the calls aren't going their way. Like they their games aren't generally so close that one call is going to decide it. So play your game, and if you do the things you normally do, you know a lot of calls can go against you. You can still come out on top. So it's not really worth extensive complaining about our even scrutiny for me. I think there were two clear calls that certainly influenced the outcome of the game that were bad, but it's happened. It's done. Nothing they can do about it. From uh, Bango Trap House, does this game change your overall perception of the series? And are we sure Malcolm Brogdon was ever injured? Uh, for me, my perception's exactly the same. I think the Bucks will win the series. I think they'll win it in five. I think they still largely remain in control. And was Malcolm Brogdon ever injured? I'm gonna I'm gonna say yes because as we touched on before, this is an injury that's well documented. Um, the full tear can actually kind of be a pretty significant. The release, the relief of of the pain a player is dealing with can be pretty significant for the pain. And there was a great Laurie Nickel piece in the Journal Sentinel the other day on his whole process with the injury and kind of detailing what his daily routine had turned into and the pain he was feeling when he'd wake up in the morning and struggling to sleep, all of this before the actual tear that ruled him out. Um, so in some ways I'd be inclined to say, yes, the fact that he's now playing so much better again might indicate that he was injured. The injury that happened was kind of a blessing in disguise in some way. I mean, the Bucks got along fine without him. He's playing great now. Uh, so that'd be my answer on that. But for the first part, it's just probably the more significant part. No, my perception hasn't changed at all. What about you, Isaac? Bucks in five. Yeah. I mean, you you got to drop one. This is not surprising. It's disappointing, obviously, to lose. But there's I mean, we didn't learn anything here. Um, we will learn something in game four. Mm-hmm. If Giannis doesn't bounce back, then that changes your perception of the series. But absolutely, if Bledsoe continues to struggle and the rest of the team plays fine, then we've learned nothing. There's nothing to learn. As for Brogdon, it almost makes his season that much more impressive. You know, if you look at what he was dealing with before the tear, to go 50, 40, 90 with constant pain is doubly impressive because 50, 40, 90 is hard enough when you're healthy. So, you know, yeah, I'm with you. He was obviously injured, and it's good that he's not. Um, maybe next year will be even better. 60, 50, 90. Maybe next year will be even better. Well, I'm, I mean, the one question that I'd have from that at the moment is going to be just how much money he's going to be paid for next season. <laughs> that will be even better, but that's a question for another day. Uh, for my Cowboys space, the Raptors did a much better job closing on shooters, it felt like, but was that more because they didn't need to help as much on Giannis with him struggling? To me, I think there's an all-round element of struggling here. I think a lot of the shooters didn't hit their shots at the rate you'd expect them to um so maybe they were just a little bit more reluctant to pull the trigger at times like i think the the best examples for this are the guys who shot well the raptors like didn't get close to because once an opportunity fell their way they were taking it and george hill stands out someone who's shooting has actually been very hit and miss with the books but he was three or four um maybe perfect from the corners and he certainly hit a couple of really big shots brogdon was really good um, Brooke too. It's someone like Miritich or Middleton who, with the exception of one pull-up, 
uh, train transition already struggled. But I, I don't look if Giannis. I don't think they were just they weren't at any point to me paying less attention to Giannis and focusing on shooters. At every time they were very much aware that Giannis was the key. So look, it doesn't help on either side. There's struggles all over, but I. I don't think there's just one thing where we could say, oh, they closed out really well. The Bucks missed some makeable shots again and shots that on another night they may well make. Hmm. From, it's really tough to, to shoot well if you're not getting the ball in rhythm and um, the Raptors' defense on Giannis definitely affected Obviously, his passing, but just the general flow of the ball around the court, which may have also contributed to the perceived increase in effective closeouts. It's much easier to close out if the ball's not moving, because you don't have to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much easier to cl- close out if your man is catching the ball at his feet instead of in his pocket. Uh, so I think, like you said, it's not one thing. It's the disruption of Giannis maybe the one thing that disrupts so many other things that we can see go wrong. The point about the ball moving is a good one. It actually reminds you of something else that we didn't touch on, but I think certainly applies is um, player movement as well. There's just mm-hmm. static offensive possessions all around. Um, and that, that doesn't help because a lot of the shooters that we think of for the books, they're better in catch and shoot situations. Um the game was actually, it devolved into something where you were going to see more Bledsoe three-point attempts than you would see Middleton, for example, because there was no real flow and you're ending up where a shot clock's winding down. There's no real route to penetration. We're behind the arc. I've got to put up a shot. So moving the ball, key, also getting guys to really kind of run off ball, make cuts. Kind of interesting how effective Pat Connaughton was in 12 minutes. And I wonder, should should he get some more run in the next game, considering the fact he's probably the book's best cutter and just any kind of off-ball movement would be helpful to kind of encouraging just a more fluid offense overall? Can't hurt. Eight points in 12 minutes, perfect shooting. Plus seven in the box score, the basic box score. Um, yeah, that that, that came that. out to a 20.9 net rating. I mean, the <laughs> offense wasn't good. Defensive rating when Pat was on the floor was 68. Something's there. Something yeah. At. Might be worth another look. From that NBA drunk contest, do you think this loss is more due to fatigue, poor three-point shooting, or Toronto defense? Two out of three. I don't think fatigue is an issue. Yeah, I don't think fatigue. If uh, fatigue was an issue, the Bucks probably would have won because the Raptors of the team um, likely to have dealt with more than that. And even within the game, they logged heavier minutes totals. I think the one thing, and it was my response after game one, although I would certainly not be as harsh on him now as I was then, is, um, you know, Yana struggling is... <laughs> to me, is going to be kind of the biggest thing of what went wrong in this game because it may be unfair to place that on him, but he can right so many of the other wrongs across the floor if he just has a better game. Um, Some of the other guys who struggled, and that includes even Middleton and Bledsoe, likely get higher quality opportunities, better looks if Giannis is completely dominating inside. So I 
poor three-point shooting certainly a factor. Toronto's defense definitely a factor too. Um, better play from Giannis and the Bucks win. Mm. And quite comfortably as well. Yeah. From a Cowboy of Space. Um, also, it seemed that the Raptors had Jason Kidd coaching last game, just blitzing Giannis and Chris a lot. And we made them pay with trees in the first half. Are there schematic ways to get Giannis touches and prevent the blitz? Um, I think preventing the blitz, get out in transition. <laughs> I mean, is is one very obvious way. Don't let a defense set. Don't let the play slow down where they have the time to send a second man over. But rather than preventing the blitz, you've got to think about beating the blitz. And if there's one team who has seen a blitz beaten over and over again many, many times, it's some of the individuals on this books team. They've just happened to be on the other side of it. So maybe, you know, between games three and four, when Giannis and Chris are in, in the film room, they should think back to their years under Jason Kidd and the ways that their team was consistently, you know, picked apart. I, I mean, to be serious about it, some better passing from Giannis, and he's certainly capable of it, would be a big deal in beating the Blitz. And then, of course, you need some shooters to make those shots too. But I I think that's it's as simple as if you trust in those things, if you trust in Giannis' ability to play, make, create for others, and those players to make the shots, that will kind of do it. It may help that you know Giannis will know the Blitz is coming next time. Maybe just... The idea of the Raptors turning to that threw him off his game, and as we mentioned earlier, the Bucks looked a little bit flustered. Generally, he might not have recovered, but for if from the opening tip of Game Four, he's expecting the blitz. Well, he's going to be more prepared. He's going to be taking the necessary steps ahead to kind of make the right passes and beat it. Yep, there's just not much to say about it. No, I, I think it's I think it's a pretty simple one. It just they don't have to worry about preventing it. They just they have the tools to beat the blitz. Um, a little bit more calm, and they'll likely do so. From at John Dolza, so much to be encouraged about long term from this team, but one big negative has to be playoff bled. So in the future, the team is going to be a shoe in for the playoffs. So are bled's regular season contributions alone worth that extension if he doesn't show up in the postseason? Uh. My my answers to this are pretty simple in that, well, he has the extension now, so I'm not all that interested in kind of litigating whether he should have got it or not. Also, we're still in the middle of the playoff run. It's the conference finals. The books have a lead. Um, I've mentioned how crucial I think the Bledsoe would be in a series against the Warriors. Does anything Bledsoe has done at any other point matter if the Bucs get to the finals and he pulls out a big series against Golden State to give the Bucs a chance? It's very hard to make a, a determination on whether the contract is a bad idea because he's got consistent playoff problems while the playoffs are still ongoing and he still has a chance to turn that around and really make an impact. Right now, I'm not feeling overly optimistic he's going to do it, but I, I can't kind of say the contract's a bad idea when two weeks from now, we could be sitting here being like, Eric Bledsoe's going to win finals MVP. Like, I, it's it's still ongoing, and it's not a question that he doesn't have the talent, that he doesn't have the smarts generally. It's just 
a question of can he get his mentality, his mindset into the right place. Maybe he can. I guess if we're looking for encouragement on that front, he's not someone who's had a ton of playoff experience in his career and every game should help him to build on that just a little. There's definite optimism in that, but I'm not ready to make any judgment on Bledsoe as a book based on what we're seeing, despite the fact he routinely frustrates me more than any other player on the roster. I think the the question undervalues um, Bledsoe's value to the regular season. I don't think they win 60 games without him. They're still a shoe-in, thanks to Giannis and a competent system, but in in many games, his ability to play well, good blood cell, mm-hmm. is crucial. Game game what was it? Game two of this very series, they went on a run because he showed up in transition. He did what he was supposed to be doing. Um, so I think that's there is some value there. Is it the value of the extension? Probably not. But like you said, it's the middle of the playoffs. It's his first playoffs under Bud, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at his career before now, it has not been in highly functional environments. Uh, he obviously came to us from the Suns, and he came to Jason Kidd, uh, which is really not much of an upgrade. Um, I don't know where he was before the Suns, but probably... He was, he was with the Clippers before the Suns, where, where he got his previous taste of playoff basketball. But that was kind of as Chris Paul's understudy, which... They, by all accounts, got on very well, and Paul was a help to him, but Chris Paul has a reputation for being a particularly um, demanding teammate, (laughs) and in a lot of ways, I wouldn't be entirely convinced that that was necessarily the most fun environment for Bledsoe, too, so... Like, this is very different for him. The other thing is, I mean, I think even with a bad playoff series... There's no reason to believe you get him cheaper this summer if he hadn't signed the extension. Like all wisdom around the extension was was a good deal for the books. Um, I think that holds up. And even just having the security of that, having that dealt to it when there are so many other questions and teams will go hard at some of these players based on how successful the books have been. Um, The other part is like, what do you do without him? Um, You mentioned like, what the books were like kind of when he came in and playing under Jace Kidd. Let's remember what they were like before that. Um, the different kind of options the books had to look at and what realistically they could do or could have done even before giving him the extension. I mean, I think the only thing that's really feasible would have been Brogdon's a point guard, but then you're losing out so much of what he's giving you at the two. You need to find a shooting guard who can do what he can do. I think the books have really maximized what they can get out of all five positions about as well as they could have, all things considered. So he fits as part of that, and I'll be reserving further judgments on his contract and the entirety of what he is in the playoffs until we see the end of whatever this book season is. And you know what? Probably still then. Probably I'd be curious to see what he looks like in next year's playoffs. Um, Because... Yeah, I think there is plenty of reason to feel good about what Bledsoe brings to the books. From at MKE Robert, are the books relying on Chris to be the initiator of the offense too much in this series? I'd say they're relying a little too much on non Giannis players more generally. Yes. And he may factor into that, but 
he can be a very good playmaker and often can do so pretty tidily. And with Bledsoe's struggles too, I wouldn't be opposed to that. I would just prefer to see more Giannis with the ball and more pick and rolls from there. Yeah, I mean, um, Chris only had three turnovers. That's the best. That's the least bad of our big three. Yeah. Um, he's good at ISO ball. He's an excellent passer. Um, I, I don't think he's the issue. I don't think his touches are the issue. I agree. If anything, you could look for some more touches and maybe work them in a different way, but I think that's... It's got to be a, a product of what the books are doing on the on a kind of larger scale. From at MK Robert again, what's worse at this point considering the full body of work, playoff Bledsoe or playoff Lowry? Um, Bledsoe. Yeah, Bledsoe's not looking so good right now. I also personally find the idea of playoff Lowry difficult because I don't think there's as much of a difference between regular season and playoff Lowry as a lot of people might. But Bledsoe's, yeah. we're waiting for, like, if Bledsoe can have a Kyle Lowry game one type game, um, that would be great. <laughs> we'll all eagerly await that, and then maybe there's some even footing, but I don't know what his really stellar contribution in the playoffs has been so far. He's he's played great defense, but a game where he's giving a lot on two ends or even something significant on both ends, still kind of waiting for that. From at Joe's Good Tweets, when should Bud consider returning Malcolm to the starting lineup? Miritich has been really bad, and Brogdon has done a nice job defending Kawhi. Maybe if Brogdon takes Kawhi early, that gives Middleton a chance to get going offensively. Well, we touched on this already. You already mentioned it as an idea, and I'm already on board. I don't. I wouldn't say Miritich has been bad. His defense has been good, which is surprising, but but good. You'll take it. And what, 10 points on 3 of 11 is not great. They just need him to make more shots. Is yeah, kind of that's just got to hit a couple more threes. But, you know, we, we really already touched on it. Robin yeah. In the, in the starting lineup is a good move. I'd be, I'd be inclined. I was coming into game three to make that switch because I think it's important for down the line as much as anything. But I think there is reason to to consider and understand why Bud might be reluctant to do so because Brogdon is being really effective and is playing great in the second unit and is making that second unit more effective than it already was. So I think something like the part of the question, maybe if Brogdon takes Kawhi early, that gives Middleton a chance to get going offensively. I mean, does that take away from Brogdon's chance to get going offensively? Because I don't know if the books should necessarily want that either. So it's, it's a tricky one. I think... They can do both and be good and win. I think that's the, the one luxury of this. So Bud can kind of weigh up his options on that. But when Brogdon is getting to 37 minutes, and I think long-term you have to still see him as a starter and important in that group, I'd probably pivot to it. But I think there's a reason why they might go the opposite way still. From at MK, Robert again, did Janos' foul trouble sneak up on you? I feel like it was never mentioned when he picked up his fourth or fifth. I was shocked to hear you at five going into the second overtime. I feel like you've kind of answered this in the question here, Robert, because the second overtime is how it snuck up. It's like if you give him an extra 10 minutes to play, um, then all of a sudden, you know, not being in foul trouble, it, it's kind of there. So it did somewhat, but 
it kind of sneaks up on a lot of players once you end up going the extra periods. From at John Dolza, Nico has always been a streaky shooter, so you have to think he'll have a game soon where he nails four to five trees, right? One would hope. I would certainly hope so. Um, that, would, that would solve a lot of problems. <laughs> it really would. It's it's kind of weird he hasn't had a game like a George Hill has had or um, like Ursan had in, in mm-hmm. game two. It would feel like it is something that at some point will happen, but hasn't so far, so who knows. But yeah, that would be something I think we'd both agree on. It would be nice if that was to come to fruition. From an MK... Sorry, go ahead. It's a question of rhythm, I think, with him. Mm -hmm. He's he's, Again, like I said, he's gone from being the number two option on a mediocre Pelicans team to being the fourth option offensively, maybe even the fifth in this particular starting lineup. Um, So he's getting a lot of intermittent shots, and sometimes you can tell he's really forcing it. He took one three that I really didn't like um, in the second half, I think. And so I think that moving to the bench and giving him the ball more might might contribute to that. He, he could have a bench mob game instead of a starter mob game. And hey, his name was printed on the t-shirt. Pat Connaughton's t-shirts, Miritich's name is on there, so... Pat is ready and waiting for the Miritich bench mob game. So like, maybe, look, if they make a lineup change, we could only hope that that would arrive in game four. Um, it, from at MK Robert, is Bud playing Bledsoe and OT over Brogdon or Hill, a way of trying to instill confidence in him, or is it more about Malcolm still coming back from injury? The former, I think. Yeah, and also just showing some trust still rather than trying mm-hmm. to go... I don't know if he's going to go out of his way to do things that are, you know, let's make you feel better at this point. I think it's, you know, he feels like he knows how good Bledsoe can be, how important he can be for the team, and if you keep putting him out there, surely he's going to figure that out. So I, I think that's got to be part of that. I mean, it is notable that he moved away from it at all. I, I think... There isn't a coach in the NBA who just would have been like, yeah, Bledsoe, you're out of here. You know, you're not, you're not to the court again this game. And again, because in this case, I would say he was the worst of the books, but he wasn't alone in having a tough game. So your options weren't quite as plentiful as they might be otherwise. So, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think it's kind of more of the former, but even a little bit just... A little bit more simple beyond that, where you're just saying, this is what we do. I feel confident in who he is. Let's keep running with that. And as a team, we should figure it out. Yeah. And I think Brockman played 37 minutes. Mm -hmm. He's clearly not on a minutes restriction. So I think it's just, you got to trust your guy. Um, During the college basketball season, Anyone who pays some attention to college ball knows uh, Cam Reddish at Duke had a really subpar year for a top 10 guy. Uh, But I remember one thing that stuck out was in their game against Florida State, he was given the last shot. Um, 
And then I think that was Coach K's way of saying, listen, you're a killer. Go out there and get a shot. You know, this is me showing faith in you. And it worked that one time. So hopefully this works for Bledsoe uh, in a more big picture mm-hmm. quality of play type situation. I think they just need to show them the film from game two. They need to show them the, the third quarter of game two and say, do that more. Because that would solve a lot of his problems. I think there's actually, there's something to that kind of idea. Um, not just that game, but go back to the regular season, the game he had against the Lakers, the Warriors game at Oracle. Mm-hmm. Um, there are multiple games that I think you could just show Bledsoe and be like, yeah, you can do this. You know, look at this stuff. If you play like this, there's no one on that team that's going to stop you. You know, so yeah, I certainly think there could be something to some sort of um, positive imagery, positive reinforcement for Bled, so that could unlock something. From at Joe's good tweets, the books continue to struggle from three. Do you think their difficulties are attributable to Raps defense, or are the books not just that good of a three-point shooting team in general, who rely on volume rather than quality shooters? I tend to think it's the latter. Um, I think the Bucks could be one of the most efficient three-point shooting teams in the NBA if they decided they only wanted to take 18 trees a game, 20 trees a game. They are a volume team by design. And the more extreme you push that concept and the more you encourage guys to just let it fly, let it fly, let it fly, your efficiency is going to be hurt. So... You, you couldn't just pair this team back and be like, let's focus on efficiency. It would completely transform everything that their offense is built around. Like they, they need to take those shots in part to make it easy for Giannis to do what he does. So I find it difficult to kind of go one way or the other. I think they are more of a volume team. I don't know if I'd say they're more volume shooters, but their whole offense is designed around taking a volume of shots that, it's not about being picky with quality. And I think honestly, if it was a, if there was a much more prescriptive focus on quality shots, this books team wouldn't have got as far as they have. No, um, I agree. I, I don't know that they have many volume shooters outside of the Meritage. Mm-hmm. Middleton's a good shooter. He had an off night mm-hmm. last night, but he's a good shooter. Lopez is a, he can be a chucker, but three of seven is not bad. Eliasov is a good shooter. George Hill has been a good shooter at times. Brockton is a 40% shooter from three, and Common's a good shooter. They're good shooters. They just take a lot, and you miss more the more you take. Yeah, I, th- I think it's pretty much that simple. Um so from make a- more. So, shoot a shot. Not just with um, not just with trades either. I think a good adjustment for the books to make from this game to the next game would be just make more shots. You know, layups yes. could also be included <laughs> on that. Um, if we're if we're talking, you know, really high level adjustments the books could make here, I think make more shots should be right at the top of that list. From at John Dolza, in spite of the nurse criticisms, it seemed like he made some nice adjustments defensively, putting Kawhi and Giannis point guards on Chris and Siakam on Bledsoe to allow Siakam to roam. Did you guys think these were good adjustments as well, or are they easy counters for the books? Well, they went in one game, so they were good adjustments for that one game. I think the quality of Udenholzer's X and O work 
after timeouts indicates that given 24 hours to come up with something, I think he will come up with something. If, you, if you're in a bad situation with matchups, you can manipulate that as the offense. You can try to force switches. You can put the ball in someone else's hands. Um, I think that'll get figured out for game four. So it was a good move for game three. I mean, I just don't think it's sustainable. Yeah, and I think that's... I would kind of hold back and call him good adjustments until we see what the Bucks do next time around mm-hmm. and how much the Bucks have to change to them. Like, was this just, you know, bad Bucks game helping the Raptors or did they force the Bucks to play at that level? The most realistic answer and most likely is that there's a combination of the two at play. But I look, I think he did some good things. I think putting Kawhi and Giannis is a good adjustment that I talked about at the end of the last episode. I also think it's it can become a very bad adjustment very quickly if Kawhi doesn't have what you need him to have to go down the other end. So I would be curious if they can do the same things, if they can approach it in the same way after Kawhi plays 52 minutes going into the next game, if they even want to have Kawhi and Giannis as much again. Because... Look, if the Raps on it in this series, they're probably still realistically looking at six to seven games. Um, like, the, well, not realistically. The minimum they can win this in is six. Yeah. So the series, <laughs> the series is going deep if the Raptors are going to win it. And knowing that, you've got to have some kind of care in how you handle Kawhi, particularly as you know the schedule is pretty unforgiving here. The every second day is allowing no real time for either team to catch their breath throughout. And as the series goes on, logic would suggest what the Raptors have had to do before this series could catch up with them too. If there's one team that's going to come through that better, it should be the books. So we'll see. We'll see how those adjustments, even their own cumulative effect plays out going forward. Um, but as you said, they got him a win. They got him a win that he needed to get. So certainly can't say there were bad decisions in the now. Um, from at David Dunn 21 gentlemen thank you for all that you do what's that no no need to apologize to me I'm sometimes wrong also anyways despite everyone's anger at blowing game three aren't we still going to win in five I feel like we're still going to win in five uh, for, as for the first part I've got nothing to apologize for uh, won't be won't be an apology coming from me second part are we still going to win a five? Yeah, I fully expect that to happen. As I said, that was my prediction before the series was that would be the game the Bucks would lose. It just, it makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So we haven't seen anything so far that to me suggests this is going off script and we've both already discussed it. So you're with me on that one, right? This is going to be Bucks and five still. Yeah, I think they come back, they win tomorrow. I think Giannis is going to play with all the anger that Giannis coming off a loss generally has. And then you're back at home for game five. And yeah, I think it should play out from there the way the way you expect. From at a Tundra Man, any chance we see DJ on the claw? Bonus question, has Bledsoe played himself out of the starting unit? Why, um, why would you do that? I have no idea. <laughs> why? 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 <laughs> like... No. I'm not I'm not seeing anything. Unsurprisingly, it's like it's something we've talked to quite a lot. 
uh, what makes me go, this is, you know, this calls for DJ Wilson. Um, DJ Wilson had an excellent third of a year when, when they needed him to. It's good that he's not a complete bust. It's a good sign for his development. You are not going to give a sophomore who has played no playoff minutes the assignment of guarding Kawhi Leonard. That's just not a recipe for success. It also doesn't make sense positionally at all. I mean... No, he's a four or a five. He's a four, and like my biggest issue with DJ, and I think the biggest reason why he doesn't get more minutes, which in some ways he could get, and based on his skill and his intelligence is physically he still needs to bulk up. He needs to get stronger. Mm-hmm. And I actually think even with the size advantage in that matchup, Kawhi would probably just barrel through him sometimes. Yeah. Um, he's not going to butter him in that way. He could butter him maybe with his length, but if that's the case, how about try Giannis nice first, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, before you go to DJ Wilson, if you've got to make an adjustment for Kawhi. Um, has Bledsoe played himself out of the starting unit? No, that would be a definite no. Again, 60-win yeah. team, just two playoff losses, two wins away from the finals. I don't think anyone is playing themselves out of anything right now. Mm-hmm. From at Lee Hark, how many layups did they miss yesterday? I wish mm-hmm. I had an exact answer for you, Lee, but the only answer I can give is a lot. It felt like an awful lot. Um, more than I can see them missing in the rest of the series. Not combined, but in any given game. Ooh, let me look at the shot chart. Um, missed. Let's see. One, two, three. F- at least a dozen missed shots in the paint. 16 missed shots in the paint. Uh, over the course of the game. So They were... Nine, <laughs> 19 of 36 in the restricted area. So 17 missed shots in the restricted area. Um, yeah. Let's see. That's, oof, that's a lot. You hate to see that. Yeah, that's not good. Um, they missed two cutting layups, four driving finger roll layups. They missed four floaters. They were 0 of 5 on driving layups. Not exactly sure where the distinction comes in there because I feel like that's not right, but still, that's that is not good, whatever way it's being calculated. Um, yeah, look, they missed a lot of layups. <laughs> There's no no doubt that they need to make the yeah. easiest shot in basketball to have a better chance going forward. Lastly, from at more cowbell 520, how many quarter beating three pointers can the Raptors possibly make during this series? A lot. Wait, I can't remember last night which <laughs> they had a quarter beating three pointer. Um, I think somebody hit a near the end of the quarter, maybe two. I think. I think there was a long two. It there certainly wasn't a Siakam from game one. Game yeah, yeah game one that. where that was. Yeah, that wasn't great, but. Let's hope no matter how many they make, it doesn't make that big of a difference, which is kind of how it's playing out right now. So to recap, Bucks lost the game. No big deal. Um, no reason to get particularly worried or agitated. 
even another loss wouldn't uh, wouldn't make me fall into that, but I don't think it that's was going to happen. It was Serge Ibaka at the end of the first half. That's right. Is that corner? Is that corner three? Yeah, that was. Yeah, no, I agree with you. This is a non-panic zone. Yeah, and all is going according to plan. This is why you have home advantage as well. Like, yep. if you're if you're giving the books win two home games to get to the finals, if you'd offered anyone on the team any fan that months ago, I think the response would have been, "Yeah, okay, okay. Um, take that chance." And that's what they have, and that's not even taking into account the possibility that they could well steal one on the road. So let's hope they manage to do that in game four, and. The next time that you hear from us, that will be one win away from the final spot. So until the next time, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on SoundCloud, Addison Stitcher, Favorites and Tune and Radio, and follow us on Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at WinIn6Podcast. That's at WinIn6. You can read my work, Isaac's work, Jordan's work, the rest of the team, BehindTheBookPass.com. As always, daily coverage of all things books, including, obviously, the postseason run right now. Um, we will be back following Game 4. Jordan should be back as well, in case people are wondering. Um, and I'm sure we'll also have some else with us. We're continuing this run of bringing new voices onto the podcast. Isaac, it was great to have you join the fold today. A lot of fun talking Pleasure books. To be here. Hope you enjoyed it. I did. I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Okay, thank you, Isaac. Thank you for listening, everyone.